Let's read、uh, Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. When we were in this text, Philippians chapter two, I didn't spend much time, actually any time, on this passage, because I wanted you to see this unit in the context of Philippians chapter two. What was the point of this famous passage? The point is in verse five. Have this mind, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The point of this passage was the humble mindset. The apostle was speaking to the Philippian church that what you need, your church. Needs is the humble mindset that was in Christ Jesus, and Paul was one of those examples. Timothy was one too, and Epaphroditus was one too. So I just wanted to read along and make that simple point that this passage really was given as an example. Yes, Christ is more than an example, but nonetheless, He is the supreme example. That you should follow and emulate. So I knew that I would have to come back to this passage and 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 explain and talk about this passage sometime. And again, this verse five through eleven is like a vast galaxy. You cannot plumb the depth of it. And today I want to make a a simple point. As we prepare for Christmas, that is the obedience of Christ. That's the topic that I want to talk to you today. Last time it was about humility of Christ, but the flip side of the same coin is the obedience of Christ. So that will be my message today, and I'll be explaining verse eight. The second half of verse eight, being found in appearance as a man—that's Christmas. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what I want to talk about. When you read that verse eight, second half of verse eight, 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, what we are normally thinking about as we are reading it is obedience to death. Obedience at the point of death. Obedience for the cross-bearing. That's what we are thinking. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So obedience of Christ, we think, and we tie that to the death on a cross. Why do we think that? There are many reasons for that. First thing, first reason would be this, Gethsemane. When the full weight of course of God is weighing upon Christ's heart, what does he do? He prays. He becomes very sad, and the synoptic gospels, they all testify that my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. To the point of death. And he prays three times. What does he say? What does he pray on the night that he was betrayed? My father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So he prays three times. So the idea is what? He, in his humanity, he doesn't, his human nature, he does not want to bear the cross. You don't want to tone down this agony of Christ. He does not want to bear it. But what does he do? He prays three times in order to obey. Not as I will, but as you will is the great prayer of obedience. So we think about Christ's obedience as obedience to bear the cross. As we think about Gethsemane is playing in the back of our minds. So obedience. He does not want to obey, but he will obey and he, he prays about it. So obedience, death. Another reason why as we read verse 8, second half of it, is actually the language of it. Language suggests that. Look at verse 8 with me. The very language of verse 8 says this, being found in appearance as a man. That's incarnation, that's Christmas. And then what's the next? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, he's born, first half, incarnation. Being found in appearance as a man. Born, but immediately what do we see? He humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. So as soon as he's born in verse 8, it skips the entire life of Christ and it goes straight to the cross, death on the cross. Another thing is this. All of the major English translations translate that to the point of Death. To the point of death. So point is a moment. So we think about he humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death. We are thinking about death because the word point. Point is a moment. So we are thinking when we read this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, but really what in our minds we are thinking is at the point of his death, like Gethsemane, he does not really want to bear it, 
because of his agony, he does not want to bear the full weight of course of God. So he obeys by praying. So what we are thinking is at the point of the cross, he obeys. That's what we are thinking. So all in all, what I've been saying is this. As we think about the obedience of Christ, especially we find it in chapter 2, verse 8 of Philippians, because of all of that is playing, that are playing back of our minds, we are thinking about Christ's obedience immediately to death of Christ. But when you carefully examine that text, to the point of, that really is a simple one-word preposition that should say, as far as, as far as or until. So it should say, by becoming obedient, not simply at the point of death, but as far as his death. And even death on a cross, he obeyed because he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So what is the point? The point is, Jesus did not become obedient at the point of his death on a cross. But his entire life was one of obedience to the will of God the Father. The concept, your view of obedience of Christ, if it is tied to the moment of the cross, because that it's, that's what it sounds like in verse 8, I want you to take this one and expand it to the point of incarnation. So the point is, Jesus' obedience is not simply in order for him to bear the cross, but as soon as he was born, his entire life was one of obedience, and that culminates at the time of the cross. That is the, the climax of his obedience. So don't simply think of Jesus' obedience at the moment of bearing the cross. In order for us to appreciate this, let me introduce, let me introduce to you a couple of concepts. I've said it a few times already. One of my favorite subjects in the seminary was systematic theology. Not because I am a systematic person. But there are many things that you learn, but when I learned systematic theology, it gave me the skeleton. And when you study Old Testament and New Testament, you could put that flesh upon the skeleton, and skeleton like Westminster Confession. I've told you. You could, you could listen to thousands of sermons, but would never really figure out the whole picture unless you have certain system within you. And when you have that, and you go back to the text and read God's Word, it helps you to see the things that you otherwise would miss. Because not everyone is mature enough to see those. 
So in order for us to appreciate the obedience of Christ, what I've been saying, we need a couple of traditional terms that I want you to think about. Middle of 1500s, but really it culminates at the time of Westminster Confession. When, when was the Westminster Confession? 1643 to 47. So 1600s, in the middle of 1600s, They've been talking about, since then, this, they've been talking about this in two aspects. You don't want to separate the obedience of Christ, but this emphasizes two aspects of the same obedience of Christ. And people, in our tradition, they've been using two terms. That is, passive obedience of Christ and active obedience of Christ. I know that's, that's a lot. But passive obedience of Christ and active obedience of Christ, they distinguish that in order to fully appreciate the obedience of Christ. It's confusing because when you say passive obedience, it sounds like Jesus was passive. He was not thinking. He was just saying, oh, I'm just going to be passive. But traditionally, passive obedience is his Paying the penalty for our sins. Why? Because of our failure to obey God's law. So when we use the term passive obedience of Christ, usually we are talking about Jesus' suffering, suffering on the cross, passion of Christ, bearing the penalty of our sins. That is passive obedience of Christ. What is active obedience of Christ? Again, it is not that he was active in certain aspects. Sometimes he remained passive. But simply to highlight, active obedience of Christ refers to his perfect obedience to God's law or God's will throughout his life. It is distinguishing Jesus' obedience in two aspects. One is what? Let's begin with active obedience. From the inception, incarnation, and all the way to the cross, his entire life was one of obedience, as we said. And that life of, life of obedience to the will of God is termed as active obedience of Christ, but his suffering on the cross is termed as Passive obedience of Christ. But you don't want to separate them totally. And, and, and we have to see that as simply two aspects of one obedience of Christ. Why do they distinguish that? Because God's law has two aspects to it. One is penal sanction. If you, don't, if you do not do this, you die. But also there is that positive side to the law of God. And you know something about this. If you have read the larger catechism or shorter catechism, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, what do they say? They usually ask, what is the, what is the let's say, Fifth Commandment? They ask, what's the Fifth Commandment? And what do they ask? Next question. What are the duties required? And then they say, what are the sins forbidden? They do not begin with the negative. 
Because usually it is thou shall not, right? So thou shall not, people say, thou shall not steal. So as long as I'm not stealing anything, I'm good, people say. But the genius of those people who, who wrote the commentary on that, they say, they flip it and say, what are the duties required? Instead of asking, are you stealing anything? In, on, 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 on the basis of that commandment, what are the duties required? What, is the, what are the positive things that you should be doing? You, so you, simply, you cannot say, I'm not stealing anything, but you should be sharing or something like that. So what are the duties required? And then what are the sins forbidden? Two aspects. That's God's law. So active obedience and passive obedience, they are simply there to highlight those two aspects of God's law. When many people read chapter 2, verse 8, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, I am telling you, so many people are thinking about Jesus' obedience of passive obedience of Christ for all the reasons that I've been saying. But it is as far as until the cross. So obedience of Christ must include his entire life. Why is active obedience of Christ, his life, one of obedience to the will of God? Why is that important? Because active obedience of Christ becomes the basis of your justification. That is why you must emphasize not only the passive obedience of Christ that he suffered on our behalf to die on our stead, in our stead on the cross. Not only that, you must emphasize the positive side. It is not like Jesus was just enjoying life, doing things, eating this, teaching some, and then at the time of cross, oh, I really need to obey. He suddenly realized, I, I, I really have to bear the cross. I, oh my, I need to pray about this. That's not the picture that we should have. As soon as he was born, and I'm carefully saying not introducing obedience to the Trinity. We don't want to talk about that. That's not the point today. But as soon as he was born, he's been obeying God's will. Why? Because he was sinless. He was God-man. He was able. Not us, but he was able. What is justification, people? What is justification? Justification has two sides to it, as we've been saying so many times. If I ask any Christian, we stop someone on the streets and says, ask that, we ask that person, are you a Christian? And that person says, yes, I'm a Christian. And can you talk about why you're a Christian? What people, what that person would say? What would, they, what would he or she say? Normally, most of Christians will say this, they will say, you know, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. So when I believe, God forgives me. So I go to heaven. But as I've been saying, as we've been saying, that's what? That's 50% of the gospel. That's not the full gospel. What is justification? Let me just read from the uh, larger catechism. What is justification? Two sides to it. One is forgiveness. The second one is accepting and accounting persons righteous. Two sides to it. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he first pardons all their sins. If I may ask you, if, you, if I give you a quiz, 
Why would God pardon your sins? Because of which obedience of Christ? God pardons the sinners on the basis of passive obedience of Christ, right? Because he died on the cross in your place. So he pardons all of your sins. But that's what most people will think and stop. I'm a forgiven sinner. That's all they will say. But what's the good news? What's the that justification talk that we've been, we've been thinking about? The second half is accepting and accounting their persons righteous in his sight. If I may ask you, why would God account and accept you as righteous? What have you done? Nothing. Can you keep the law perfectly to attain righteousness? No. But then why would God not only forgive you, but should accept you and account you as righteous on the basis of which obedience? That's right. You must say his active obedience, that's his entire life of obeying God throughout his life, not simply at the point of the cross, but from the inception, from the incarnation to the cross, his entire life was one of obedience increasing in degree. So, on the basis of passive obedience, God forgives you. But on the basis of his life of obedience, which actually earned righteousness of God, and God imputes that righteousness that Christ earned to you, that's why God accepts you and accounts you as righteous. On the basis of what? On the basis of active obedience of Christ. Why would God forgive you? On the basis of passive suffering of Christ on the cross. Two sides must be there for us to understand full justification. What is justification? Why should we rejoice? We rejoice because God declares not only that I'm forgiven, but the positive demand of God's law and God's will, God's mind, is that you must do this, do this and live. Christ did that. And because Christ did that, the righteousness of God is Christ is imputed to us, reckoned to us, so we rejoice. Not simply because we are forgiven sinners. That, that's good. In, that's good. But the second half of the story is that God declares you righteous. So this is not immediately clear when we, we talk, think about Christian life. I don't know how many people would, would think about it. So when you truly understand what the justification is, you end up rejoicing and baffled. What do you mean? I'm 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 righteous person. Most people will be satisfied with I'm forgiven. But truth is, you have to be forgiven, but you have to be also perfectly righteous. How can God declare you righteous if there's no righteousness to impute to you? That will be really a, a, a fiction. But on the basis of what? Jesus' life of obedience, people used to call it active obedience of Christ. And the rest of the larger catechism 7 is this. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ. That's active obedience. By God, imputed to them and received by faith alone. So as we look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 8, his humility, his becoming obedient, not at the point of death, 
But until the, the, the death on the cross, I want us to think about his entire life, including even death on the cross, entire life as one of obedience to the will of God. Once again, why is that important? Forgiveness of sins, passive obedience of Christ. Accepting and accounting you, declaring, declaring you righteous on the basis of active obedience of Christ. So John Murray says this. John Murray, longtime professor at Westminster Seminary, the atonement is not biblically oriented unless it is governed by this concept of obedience. Because salvation is secured by the obedience of Christ. And in that passage, he also talks about this. Incarnation alone is not salvation. Death on a cross is not, alone is not salvation. But you must think about incarnation to death on a cross through the lens of obedience of Christ. If Jesus was hanging on the cross mindlessly, passively like this, I'm not thinking anything, that, that, that really is not the picture of atonement. For the atonement of Christ to be fully, 100% atonement, you need the obedience of Christ. Distinction was active and passive, but really one obedience. It's not that I want to bear the cross, so God help me to bear the cross. I want to obey. I really need your help. That's not the point. His life, entire life, is one of obedience. And that's what I want you to see from Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, as you think about Christmas and the meaning of incarnation. And I'm going to give you now some of the applications. I'm not done. Applications. Then, first application. Conclusion is this. Taking the cue from the Christ's entire life as one of obedience, your life, your entire life should be marked with obedience to the will of God. Your entire life should be. Because we often want to obey when the stakes are high. Suddenly, we pray to God when there's, a, let's say, entrance to a university. Suddenly, you say, I will obey. If this business is struggling, if someone is dying, suddenly we say, I want to pay you by obeying more. But look at Christ. It's not that he obeyed at the end of his life. His entire life was one of obedience. So that's why Christian, true Christian, will never say, I just want to live my life in whatever way I want. And at, on the deathbed, I will just convert. I will just pray the prayer and go to heaven. So I will enjoy my life and go straight to heaven. No true Christian will ever say that. So your entire life should be marked with the obedience.
past few months, I've been, whatever I've been reading and meditating, I've been on the lookout to see if anyone will comment on Ephesians 2, 5 through 11. Mainly, I've been reading a lot of John Calvin and some John Owen. And actually, this week was a milestone for me because I was done with volume one of John Owen, first half. It took me really a couple of years because of lack of my discipline in it, but really about 300 pages. I was so happy this week. So whenever these people were say anything on Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I would write them down. Not many people would comment on it, but John Owen comments on it in passing. And there he says this, and I thought it was a good way to think about Philippians chapter 2 passage. This he did in this way of our recovery, in that his own eternal son entered into a state of obedience and took upon him the form or condition of a servant unto God. And I was confused because, as I've been saying, when you read that passage, I'm thinking about obedience of Christ to the death on a cross. So obedience is for the death. But what John Owen was saying, when he entered into a human form of a servant, he entered into a state of obedience. It's another way of saying his life, entire Christ's entire life was one of obedience. So I think that's a good way. And he says, how could any state represent it more amiable, desirable, and blessed? What do you desire? You and I, we should be desiring the full obedience to the will of God by the power and grace of God. Every day, that should be our focus. Not that I will obey in order to get something from God. But your entire life should be that of state of obedience. Always, every day, all the time. And that should be a joyful one because Christ entered into a state of obedience. That's a good way to see Jesus' life. Entire life as a consistent state of obedience. That's what you and I need. Second point is really a general point, but second point application is this. Obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. In in, in evangelical Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity, we are part of that too. There is a built-in resistance to the concept of obedience for the fear of introducing works righteousness. Evangelical Christianity emphasizes, including us, often we, we emphasize grace, love, forgiveness, and all of that. But obedience is not a popular theme. Some people think as soon as you hear the word obedience, you say, works righteousness, legalism, Catholic. No, no. But 
the saving faith is characterized by the obedience to the gospel. We normally think about gospel presentation as accepting or rejecting. You share the gospel, some people receive and accept, some people reject it. So we think of that as acceptance and rejection. That's the category in which we think about gospel presentation. You know, that's not the way Bible talks about gospel reception. Do you know what Bible uses, what term Bible uses for the people who reject the gospel? Bible does not say where they rejected the gospel. But listen to a couple of passages. Colossians 3, 6 says this. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming to upon the sons of disobedience. Unbelieving people are the sons of disobedience, not sons who reject the gospel, but sons of disobedience. What about Peter? What does Peter say in 1 Peter 4? For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, within the household of God, that's the church, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's not on the basis of my intellectual ability I reject the gospel. But from the Bible's perspective, from the word of God, you are not merely rejecting the gospel. You are disobeying the gospel claim. So you are sons of disobedience. You are the ones who disobey the gospel. Romans will be the place where you would go to find the full gospel. But Paul describes the, 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 the faith in this way. Three times, Romans 1.5. Through whom we received grace and apostleship, for the obedience of faith. There is a sense in which your faith, saving faith, must obey the gospel claim. So he says, for the obedience of faith. Not simply accepting of faith, but obedience of faith. Romans 15, 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. When he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he describes that as them, the Gentiles, obeying God. The last one, same Romans, Romans 16, 26. But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the Gentiles, leading to obedience of faith. So characteristic, saving faith, if you have that, saving faith, your saving faith should be obedient faith. No one is saying obedient, obedience to attain righteousness. Nobody is saying that. But there shouldn't be any allergic reaction to the word obedience. Why? Look at Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient as far as the cross. 
If Christ lived their life to impute to us His righteousness, shouldn't we gladly live a life of obedience to the will of God? We should. So if you are still rejecting the gospel, simply Bible says to you, you are son or daughter of disobedience. You are not obeying the gospel. That leads to the third one. Obey the gospel, but we should obey the word of God. It's an obvious point, right? Obvious point. Obey the word of God. Flip side is what? I will not obey the man-made rules. That's what you are resolving too. Good works, chapter 16 of Confession. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not as such without the warrant thereof are devised by men, out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. So when I say obey the word of God, I am also saying you do not have to obey any man-made commandments. And by what can you judge them? By comparing it to the word of God. That's how you know. No matter how good the intentions are, If it is not according to the word of God, it undermines the gospel, you and I should have courage to reject that. But now let's come back to the positive side. You know, this is something that I've noticed. You and I, we've been Christians, we have been Christians for a long time. So we know what our life, our life should be, Christian life should be. So we just do the Christian life. For example, Sunday, you go to church. Prayer meeting, you go to prayer meeting. I mean, it's good that you, you, you do that. I'm glad you showed up today, like I said in the beginning. But I was also thinking, maybe we should, instead of automatically do the things that we should be doing anyways, We should confirm those, whether they are in the Word of God or not, and make a point for your children and for yourself to find a place from the Word of God, to point them to the Word of God, and telling them to to obey the Word of God. Instead of, let's say, go to church on Sunday, why don't you pick a point, a passage verse from the Bible, and point them to the Word and actually make your life as the obedience to the Word of God, revealed Word of God. I think that would be a great practice. What about serving? We've been talking about Philippians. What about serving? I don't have to appeal to you that we need servants in the church. We need everybody's support. I don't, wanna, I don't, I don't really want to say that. Instead of that, I would simply point to you Philippians 3. 3, we already talked about. What are the three marks? One who serve by the Spirit of God. Worship, but really that word is serving. Are you a true Christian? That serving should be that. That that should be the mark. It should mark you. 
So I don't have to say to you, please serve the church. I beg you, please serve. No. There's the word, and you obey the word. What about reading God's word? I mean, do I have to? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly. That's the word. So you obey. It's not so much, should I, should I not? But really, it's obedience or disobedience. What about going to church? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That is binding. Remember that, that those are binding commandments. Not forsaking our own assembling together like that is habit of some. Gather together. Make it a point to come together, encouraging one another. Assemble together is the commandment of God. So you point that to your own heart. You point that to your children and friends and say, here is the word of God. I hope and pray that you would obey. What about family? Family relationship. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Husbands, love your wives. All of that. What if someone's spending too much time in the uh, entertainment? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Point them to the warning. I mean, you could enjoy in your free time, but you are busy, and how much free time do you have? One of the things that I've been doing on Sunday afternoon, as soon as I return home, I'm just, just too tired, and I mean, I just, you feel, just, I feel so sleepy. But if I sleep, take a nap, you know I can't sleep at night, so I have to stay awake. So what I do is I read something easy, something not crazy. And I've been reading Second Timothy sermons by Calvin. I've been reading Calvin after this summer, ever since I returned from that confess, Mr. Confession uh, trip in Philadelphia. Because at the time, remember I told you, Westminster Confession really, in order for you to understand, you need to understand Calvin. So I've been reading a bunch of Calvin stuff. And Calvin's sermons are good in a sense that it is not, it is not, let's say, flamboyant. It is not crazy things. It's consistent, simple truth. So I find myself going to that Second uh, Timothy sermons, not commentary, sermons by John Calvin. Very clean, simple, consistent truth coming at you. So people, Sunday is the only time probably that you have some free time. Spend it well. The last one, last point is this. When we think about obedience, did you know Jesus' obedience was forged in suffering? It was not that he obeyed because there was nothing to worry about in his life. But according to Hebrews 5, what does it say? Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. There must be increase not only in his knowledge and stature, there was an increase in his obedience. And supreme obedience was to the cross. So he learned obedience from the things we each suffered. But many times we turn away from obeying God, 
thinking that God betrayed us when God gives us suffering. But it is precisely in the midst of the suffering, Christ learned obedience. That's the word. Christ learned obedience according to his human nature. So I will end here. Christmas is a season to celebrate. In his humility that he possessed from his pre-incarnate state, he humbled himself. And taking a form of a slave, he became a man. But his life, ever since he was born, his life was one of growing obedience to the will of God. And I hope and pray that as children of God, that you will obey God because obeying God is much better than the sacrifice. Surrender unto God the obedience that is due to Him. And let that be your joy and strength. Let's pray. Oh God.